At the end of last week, I had a very interesting conversation with an attorney about a medical case. Well, that's one way to start a podcast, right? How often have I said that? Uh, never. <laughs> but we're not going to give away any specifics about the case because that's not the point here. But the content material of the case is something we're going to discuss. So here's what happened. A great friend of mine outside of the state of Texas had a routine, uncomplicated, non-macrosomic vaginal delivery. I mean, it was textbook. Well, that baby then was then diagnosed with a brachial plexus injury. Specifically, it was an herbs palsy. Well, sure enough, a plaintiff attorney said that had to have been a shoulder dystocia because shoulder dystocia is the only thing that can cause a brachial plexus injury. Is that correct? And was my friend the physician trying to cover something up by not reporting it? As well as the other nurses who all gave depositions that said it was a totally normal, non-traumatic, non-dystocia birth? Well, the truth is, non-shoulder dystocia-related brachial plexus injuries do happen. And it was just published at the end of last year in October of 2020 in the Green Journal. So in this podcast, we're going to review the incidental finding of brachial plexus injuries. How common is it? Why does it happen? And what do we need to know about it? Ready? Let's do this now. This is Clinical Pearls. Before we get into what the researchers found, I think it's important to stop for a minute and review the brachial plexus and what herb Duchenne palsy is and where it comes from and Klumke's palsy because some of us haven't had that since gross anatomy or back in our physiology classes. The brachial plexus, remember, is a network of nerves that provides movement and even feeling to the shoulder, arm, and the hand. The nerves supporting the arm exit the spinal column high in the neck. Those that support the hand and the fingers exit lower in the neck. This nerve complex is composed of four cervical nerve roots, C5 through C8, and the first thoracic nerve root, T1. So remember, we're talking about C5 through T1. These roots combine to form three trunks. C5 through C6 form the upper trunk, C7 continues as the middle trunk, and C8 to T1 form the lower trunk. And then remember that we've talked about the nerve roots and the trunks, and then each trunk, therefore, splits into a division. Now, half the divisions globally supply flexor muscles that lift and bend the arm, and the other supply the extensor muscles that strengthen the arm and bring it down. Now, let's talk about the types of injuries. Remember that the most common is a stretch injury, which people usually consider, again, related to either shoulder dystocia or, as we will find out soon, the normal forces of labor, really, as the baby descends down the birth canal, mainly because of the pressure of the posterior shoulder from the sacral promontory. But then there's the more severe kind of brachial plexus injury, which is a complete avulsion or tearing, a complete severing of the nerves that come from the nerve root to the rest of the trunks. And those obviously are a more severe form of injury. This severity does depend on the number of nerves involved and the degree to which each level is injured. Herb's palsy, remember, affects the nerves arising from C5 and C6. So Herb's palsy is high up in the brachial plexus, and that gives a traditional waiter's tip kind of deformity. Middle trunk 
brachial plexus palsies involve nerve fibers also from C5 and C6, but mainly at the C7 level. Klumke's palsy results in deficits at levels of C8 and T1, so Klumke's is lower, although many clinicians agree that pure C8 to T1 injuries do not occur in infants and may be more indicative of spinal cord injury or the traditional pull injury that happens later on in childhood as a parent, caregiver, or somebody else pulls up on the child from the arm, and then you get the traditional lower half of the brachial plexus injury, that's Klumke's palsy. So remember, Herb's palsy for deliveries, and then Klumke's later on in childhood from arm stretch or child pull on the arm. As a clinical pearl, remember that Herb's palsy typically affects, again, the shoulder and the arm, but the hand is typically spared, whereas Klumke's palsy typically affects the muscles of the hand. And lastly, remember that brachial plexus injuries aren't just about the shoulder, arm, or the hand, but it also affects the eye. And remember, don't forget or don't fall into that trap thinking that brachial plexus injuries only affect the shoulder or the muscles in the arm or the hand because Horner's syndrome is also part of the brachial plexus injury. Lastly, don't get into the trap thinking or remembering that brachial plexus injuries somehow only affect the shoulder, the arm, or the hand. Remember, it can affect the eye as well. Now, this is a more severe and a rare... Lastly, remember that brachial plexus injuries don't just affect the shoulder, the arm, or the hand, but can affect the face as well. That's the case with Horner's syndrome. This roughly represents about 10 up to 20% of injuries, and it's usually associated with the more severe form of injury, the avulsion. The sympathetic chains of nerves can be injured, usually way down lower in this brachial plexus chain. So now we're talking about T2 to T4. So remember, not the true brachial plexus itself, but just past that as you go down the chain to T2 and T4. The child can present with ptosis, that's the drooping eyelid, meiosis, a smaller pupil of the eye, and anhydrosis, that's diminished sweat production in part of the face. Now, this child can have the more severe form of brachial plexus injury, presenting, of course, as facial findings. So we have Herb Duchesne, we have Klumke's, and then we have the complete avulsion down below the brachial plexus at T2 to T4, which is Horner's syndrome. Historically, brachial plexus injuries were thought to be the synquinon, that's without a doubt proof, that shoulder dystocia occurred. However, we know that that's definitely not the case. These two complications appear to actually be unrelated, and that was according to research that just came out October of 2020 in the Green Journal, with the lead author being Grace Johnson. Now, here's a shout-out to Texas, because those researchers came out of Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Johnson et al. performed a medical review of over 41,000 deliveries at Texas Children's Hospital between March 2012 and July of 2019, identifying cases of brachial plexus injury with and without shoulder dystocia that occurred and persisted. 
The researchers also evaluated whether the clinical experience of the provider being five years or fewer, between six and 15 years, or more than 15 years since training, and their level of education actually impacted the risk of children developing shoulder dystocia or brachial plexus injury. And that's a pretty easy thing to consider, right? We always seem to blame it on the new trainee or the intern because they just pulled too hard or not hard enough, depends on how you look at it, and that that somehow led to morbidity. Well, is that true? Does level of clinical experience and education and training affect brachial plexus injury and shoulder dystocia? We're going to get into those results in just a minute. All right, now here's the first clinical pearl, because after all, shoulder dystocia only happens with vaginal deliveries, right? No, that's not true at all. Cesarean sections are not completely protective against shoulder dystocia, although it's obviously much rarer in that setting. Here's what the researchers found. There were 547 cases of shoulder dystocia in just over 26,000 vaginal births, giving a percentage of about 2.1% of vaginal deliveries. But with C-sections, in 15,362 cesarean births reviewed, there were actually nine cases of shoulder dystocia. That gave a percentage of 0.06%. Now, what about brachial plexus injuries? Well, overall, there were 33 cases of brachial plexus injuries. Nearly all brachial plexus injuries were in vaginal births, so that was about 30 cases, or about 0.1%. But the remaining three cases obviously happened in cesarean sections, for a rate of 0.02%. So let's stop right there, because that's a lot of numbers and percentages. Here's the take-home. Vaginal deliveries obviously can have shoulder dystocia and brachial plexus injuries, but both conditions, shoulder dystocia and brachial plexus injuries, can happen at C-section as well, although it's vastly, again, much less common. All right, remember, those were 33 cases of brachial plexus injury. Of these, 14 cases, or 42% of these brachial plexus injuries, did not co-occur with shoulder dystocia. Did y'all get that? That's nearly half. 42% of brachial plexus injuries did not have shoulder dystocia at the time of birth. Brachial plexus injury that persisted to discharge was actually similar for children with shoulder dystocia and those without shoulder dystocia. All right, I'm so sorry, guys. I really don't like putting a bunch of numbers in these podcasts because nobody can remember that. But they were significant here, and that's why we had to say them. Well, here's what this means. The authors concluded the frequent co-occurrence of shoulder dystocia and brachial plexus injury coupled with the equally frequent occurrence of just isolated brachial plexus injury suggests that both brachial plexus injury and shoulder dystocia often reflect two casually unrelated complications of uterine forces driving a fetus through the birth canal in the presence of disproportion between the passage and the shoulder girdle of the passenger. Here's what that means. Sometimes you can do everything right. And as the baby passes down the birth canal, and this more implies to the posterior shoulder where the posterior shoulder can get kind of stuck at the sacral prominence and then 
kind of get held up as the baby descends into the birth canal. And that has nothing to do with the baby's head delivery or traction by the provider. That's a good place to stop and give another clinical pearl. This is why it's super important to remember to document, to write down, to put in the delivery note, which shoulder was anterior and which was posterior at time of birth. Let's say the baby's right shoulder was anterior, but then later is found to have a left shoulder brachial plexus injury. Well, that doesn't mean that traction was applied because the one that's most likely going to be affected at time of delivery, if it's provider driven, is the anterior shoulder. So if brachial plexus injury happens on the posterior shoulder, then that's possibly more likely to be related to the uterine forces just as the baby descends into the birth canal with a big component there likely being the sacral promontory. According to these researchers, factors that impacted the risk of brachial plexus injury in children without shoulder dystocia were actually a lack of maternal diabetes, that's weird, and second stage labor lengths that were longer, so that's a big pearl. Second stage deliveries that took longer, in other words, it was about a mean of 103 minutes in those that developed brachial plexus injury versus 53 minutes for those who did not, could be a factor there for, again, traumatic labor forces, not traumatic pull by the provider. Also, the researchers found no significant between-group differences regarding operative delivery, maternal age, or gestational age. The researchers also examined the experience of the clinician who delivered the children with brachial plexus injuries and discovered, here it is, that there were no significant differences in the children who had transient as opposed to persistent brachial plexus injury based on the number of years the clinician had been in practice. And on that note, all the interns and all those recently graduated from residency shout enjoy. I mean, look, let's be honest here, right? Education and years of clinical experience are valuable. I mean, they count for something. But what does this mean? Well, it means that despite your best effort and despite all of your experience, sometimes stuff just happens and it happens randomly. So that's what these researchers found. There was no significant difference in the incidence of this de novo brachial plexus injury for those who have practiced five years or less, greater than five years or 15 years or more. So once again, doing things like simulation drills for education and for training and for experience are valuable. But sometimes despite our best attempts to do everything right, stuff still happens. So as we get ready to wrap this up, let's do our rapid fire clinical pearls. First, brachial plexus injury occurs both with and without a diagnosis of shoulder dystocia. Next, the finding that non-shoulder dystocia brachial plexus injuries are associated with a longer second stage of labor suggests that these injuries can occur even prior to the delivery of the fetal head and are often not related to maneuvers employed by the obstetrician during delivery. Next, the different years or levels of experience of the providers, while super important and at times may be a factor, in general, does not seem to influence the rate of labor-induced brachial plexus injury. And lastly, remember that cesarean section, although it is much less common in its occurrence with that mode of delivery, cesarean section is not 100% protective against brachial plexus injury either.
Well, that brings us to our wrap, covering non-traumatic or non-shoulder dystocia plexus-related injuries. Yep, brachial plexus injuries can occur at C-section, and that would really suck, but it does happen, and of course it can happen just with a normal, atraumatic, run-of-the-mill, regular vaginal delivery just because of the normal forces of labor, specifically as the child descends down into the birth canal. So it's not always the intern's fault. Guys, thanks for being part of Clinical Pearls. We'll see you next time on another episode.